This is episode 59 of the Immunology Podcast, Infectious Disease Ecology and Evolution with Dr. Daniel Stryker. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rout. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Immunology Podcast, rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Daniel Stryker from the University of Glasgow on the podcast to talk about his research on pathogen transmission between species. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up. But first... Dear listeners, don't forget about the upcoming International Union for Immunological Societies Congress coming to Cape Town, South Africa from November 27th to December 2nd. We are so excited because we are attending. Early bird registration closes on August 30th, but uh, if you want more information, you can visit IUIS2023.org to learn more about it. All right. So. Another day, another science story. Do you like stories, Jason? Yeah, of, of course. Like, you know, LARPing, science fiction, fantasy, like it's all up all up my alley. All for it. We were just talking, I was asking you that even though you're a father of two successful scientists and director at your company, do you, you have find time to read books? Of course. Well, one, you stuck get stuck on planes with that fancy job and then you have time to read. And then I read in the evening. Mm -hmm. So I've been reading a lot from a science fiction fantasy author called Chris Fox lately. Um, mm -hmm. My wife actually ended up making a map for him for one of his uh, worlds that he does because she does fantasy maps on the side as a side gig. Oh, my and, God. And then I'm uh, getting back into some Brandon Sanderson with the Alloy of Law trilogy, finishing that up right now. He's a pretty famous fantasy science fiction author. Um, occasionally, I, you know, do... Um, you know, business books and other things or reading mm. something from Daniel Kahneman right now on the side. And then, yeah, there's a lot like of like the, the classic from Daniel Kahneman, the thinking fast, thinking slow. Yeah. That one. Yeah. And then like, I don't know, we have like a 2000 book hard, you know, hard book library, not, not just eBooks in our house. Beautiful. Must be a beautiful site. It is. It takes up all the space. Yeah. We have just wall to wall bookshelves in our bedroom. That's how it should be. I love that. I think it's great. To be honest, you know, after moving, I, I had a decent, during college, I had a decent library. Uh, but then, you know, moving across the Atlantic forced me to reconsider my relationship with my books. So there's only yeah. so many books I could bring. So now I try to be lighter. Why my uh, wife and I just combined our books together and kept going. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you stay in the same continent, it's a lot easier to do that. It's true. But I like audiobooks. You know, I'm listening to, um, I like a lot, I love fiction, but also nonfiction a lot. I'm listening to um, The Gene, an intimate story from Siddhartha Mukherjee. Do you know him? I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. So The Gene is pretty good, I have to say. Uh, I guess if you already have quite a knowledge of genetics, some things get a little bit uh, redundant, but it does tell you a lot of the backstory of the people that, you know, um, did all the, the work. So that was very interesting to hear, you know, about this, the, the life of James, uh, James Watson or how, um, you know, Mendel actually, you know, came out to, uh, came about publishing his, his peace story, things like that. Very interesting. And I also also had heard had read before some years ago another book from this author Siddhartha Mukherjee, uh, which is I thought it was awesome. The is a book about cancer, also about the, the history of like how we came to understand cancer. It's called The Emperor of All Maladies. Oh, that book was yeah, yeah. so I, good. Yeah, so good. I yeah, always recommended. I loved it. So that's why I was like, I have to read this other book. I mean, it's been already out for some years, but so that was also very nice. I can. I really like that, but I have to say that I have, I don't, somehow I don't find the time to read that many books. So I do audiobooks a lot. Yeah, I, I was, like I was low on the book thing. Like it'd been four or five months since I'd really done, done anything, but I, I banged out like six in the last four weeks. Wow. That's pretty good. Nice. So not bad. Keeping the brain young. Good for right. you. Well, the body's not getting any younger, so it's <laughs> going to be the brain. 
Someone's about to turn 40 in a week. Oh, no. Well, congrats. Oh, yeah. You don't. I, I, I plan to slide into a middle age like a, a, a bus with no brakes. Perfect. That's, that's how you should do it. There's no other way. There is no other way. So talking about ways. Yes. What well, about which ways have our researchers uh, we're talking about today? Well, for a found... set ways, I was going to ask if you had genes or aging, but looking at your list, I don't think you have any uh, specific genes or aging. But I think you have a story about sleep disturbance, and like that happens in old people. So I guess do you want to start with your sleep disturbance one? Sure. Um, I thought it was really cool. Um, I have to say, well, I read it. I chose it because I thought it was really cool. Also, I heard some nice uh, comments on Twitter. And I have to say the immunological component of it is rather modest. But still, um, there's definitely an immunological source to this issue. So I think it's a really interesting um, a, a, a paper to, to talk about. So the paper is titled Immune Mediated Denervation of the pineal gland underlies sleep disturbance in cardiac disease. Was published in Science. First author Karin Ziegler from the lab of Stefan Engelhardt at the German Center for Cardiovascular Research in Munich. And um, this paper aims at understanding a well-known phenomenon, which is people that had had car uh, cardiac failure. Um, seem to have a disturbance in their sleep cycles, uh, sleep-wake cycle. And so in order to understand where's the origin of this disturbance, so the, the, the author is kind of introduced to a little bit of neurology, which is new for me, so I was very interested. So the sleep-wake cycle is controlled, of course, uh, by our brains. And this one particular molecule, which is melatonin, that is part is the one that is you know responsible for um, guiding the twenty four uh, hour cycle, and melatonin is synthesized in the pineal gland, and this gland is controlled by a, a group of neurons, so it's, uh, so from the sympathetic uh, system, and in particular these ones that are part of the superior cervical ganglia, um, and. This superior cervical ganglia not only innervates the pineal gland, but also seems also is in contact with heart, with neurons that innervate the heart. So there's you know, some connections here. Um, and the authors kind of started looking into this connection to see if there was a, a, a you know was a relationship between the heart, the pineal gland, melatonin. And what they did is started with human human samples of of, of um, in autopsies, and they looked at the pineal gland, and they seemed to find that um, there was differences in the innervation of the pineal gland of people that had had heart attacks versus kind of people that had not. Um, and there's a particular marker that they use is enzyme tyrosine hydroxylase, which marks sympathetic. New, uh, neurons, so that kind of helps them kind of identify what neurons, which neurons are what. So this is all a bit very neurology, but it makes sense. Um, and they see this kind of reduction in the density of the of the axons that are innervating uh, the pineal gland tissue, and um, so they see they seem to think that there's something going on. And they go into mouse models, and basically they give mouse mice heart attacks, and they look in their pineal gland and. They do so, and, and they kind of evaluate the mice. They see that indeed the mice have, you know, reduced melatonin concentration, so dysregulated sleep, and they do a, a bunch of uh, behavioral analysis. They, they show that they can kind of uh, imitate, model this, this this disturbance with mice, and they see that indeed uh, these mice have also their pineal gland has uh, issues. Um, so kind of long story short, because there's a lot of, they do a lot of analysis, understanding, you know, they show really by many ways that there's a reduction in the innervation of these neurons. And basically that there is fibrotic scarring, um, which seems to be kind of related to the, the, the loss of these neurons. And what, what, but the way the show is, what they see is that uh, one of the cells, and so they do a lot of analysis, single cell analysis, to see which cells are in this this in the scarred glands, so, and they see that 
there all of a the sudden there's this uh, increase in one particular cell, which we know, the good old macrophage. And they conclude that these macrophages are generating the scar tissue that is disturbing the innervation of the pineal gland. And that's kind of basically, you know, the immunological component is that after, um, after the, the, the heart attack, there's this activation of the macrophages that end up, they end up kind of uh, disturbing the ganglia, this, uh, this oh, it wasn't the, the, um, the uh, superior cervical ganglia, and that this disturbance of the superior cervical ganglia uh, reduces the melatonin production from the pineal gland. And they showed that if you, uh, um, if, you, if you give mice heart attacks, but you use, for example, chlorinate, which inject chlorinate into the, 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 the ganglia, you can reduce the uh, denervation of the pineal gland um, by preventing macrophages from going there. So this kind of this other way that they show that these macrophages are somehow affecting. So it's not, I think there's some details that are still need to be kind of clarified, but in principle, they see, what they see is there's a um, inflammation of the, of, the, of, the, of the ganglia, of this, gosh, I always forget the name, of the superior cervical ganglia. And this, so hypertrophy of the ganglia, um, can, it, it's, it's funny because they, can, they see in human subjects, they go to, back to human subjects and they look to see if they can see this hypertrophy also in people that have sur- suffered heart attacks. And they see that, that that seems to be a consequence of, of, of heart attacks and that this uh, correlates with, with uh, disturbances in sleep. So, and basically they, 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 the, the culprits of these are macrophages that are messing up uh, after a heart attack. So uh, it was a very interesting like connection between the immune system and neurons, uh, you know, and, 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 and nervous system. So it's always cool to see. And also it seems to be very relevant to how we understand heart attacks and, and the consequences of them afterwards. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting that all these sequelae happen and now we're figuring out why. So maybe yeah. you can get some action from it because... Yeah, the, the the sleep function changes makes it it's a permanent problem even if you get over the heart attack. Oh, that's horrible. I didn't I, I didn't know that people got also like oh, yeah. issues from heart attacks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so speaking of things you can lose sleep over, we lose sleep over vaccinations in this country all the time and vaccine science and everything else. Today, though, we're gonna just talk about an organoid model of vaccines. Uh, but it's about influenza. Um and nothing to lose sleep over this, although I think it's an interesting point they're making uh, and that I'll get to in a second. It's in immunity. It's titled Influenza Vaccine Format Mediates Distinct Cellular and Antibody Responses in Human Immune Organoids. First author is Jenna M. Kasterschmidt, and last author is Lisa E. Wager, um, coming out July 20th. So they use a tonsil organoid system and give different types of flu vaccines to it. They either give flu influenza they give inactivated vaccine or live attenuated vaccine and they try and talk about how different format have different benefits or other things and affects things but really if you read the paper on the results section it's just all basically at least i interpret it why live attenuated is better but they don't come out and say it which i think is a really weird thing going on so they say oh it's different but it's not like, well, there's A that's good here and B that's better in the other one. It's just all generally pointing to general superiority of live attenuated. Uh, and what do they look at when they do this? They look at antibody production titers, cross-reactivity of the antibodies, the targets of the antibodies. So they're able to look at what proteins are generated in response to. And they look at also the effect on the T cell compartment and activation there and strengthening there. And they um, basically on all metrics, live attenuated is better. What they do find interestingly in terms of mechanism, and I thought this was the more interesting part, is that the inactivated virus tends to operate through only memory cells. So it requires T memory cells and B memory cells. So CD4 T cells are required for 
inactivated virus production of antibodies, or sorry, inactivated um, vaccine, and B cell depletion on memories, pre-existing memory cells affects its function too. But for live attenuated and the actual virus itself, you can have naive T cells, naive B cells, serve come through and function and they look at this in a variety of ways they see first signals of this with say igm versus igeg class switching curves and titers but they also then do depletion studies because they these organoid cultures and demonstrate that with depletion it goes away so so fundamentally the real story is that inactivated vaccine seems to have a high memory component and again these are tonsils from people having tonsillectomies so i bet you that even though there's enough recycling of the vaccine over time that there's already an inherent memory response and that's a response you're getting but with a live attenuated or the virus itself you get a much broader and more robust immune response but again i don't know why they just didn't go out and say that and call a duck a duck but are there live attenuated influenza vaccines there are they're not really popular they've gotten people sick in the past and then there's mm. a concern that they escape out and become un- unattenuated before a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this nasal one. It just wasn't particularly well adopted. It still exists. Mm. I mean, that's always a risk, right? With this live attenuated, like polio vaccine, you know, <laughs> every once in a while you got back polio. <laughs> what did you do then? Um, and so they do this with tonsil organoids because, yeah, the idea of the tonsils being basically lymph nodes, then you have all of the a much better representation of immune cells and the whole structure and the idea that you can see germinal centers and things like that uh, forming or like the organoids are, are, do they show that they contain all the right ingredients? Oh yeah. Yeah. So this is all old, like stuff they published their model before, but yeah, organoids contain all the right, or these tonsil organoids contain all these ingredients. They have germinal centers. They can see, they Mm -hmm. track movement in and out and plasma blasts and full blown plasma cells and memory B cells. They do, they have all the compartments that you need. Because then most of the vaccines, so the flu vaccinations are nowadays they're mostly recombinant, aren't they? In terms, of, no, they're no? activated virus. Inactivated, inactivated virus. Okay, Grown so up in eggs. Th- so the idea is that then you, when you say memory, so if a person gets vaccinated for influenza, then you're saying that you're counting on some kind of similar or like some previous exposure, and you're you are mostly activating those previously it seems that for inactivated virus you're mostly activating previous memory cells to generate an antibody response which Mm -hmm. lasts for a period of time and it's to very specific proteins that's the nucleocapsid protein not the hemagglutinin nearly as much but with the live attenuated you get much more broad sweeping response yeah or cross-reactive antibodies to other strains and such well, that's probably a good thing because then if it you is. only it's just are no one expanding, live, you know, attenuated virus for flu. I mean, not no one, but it's not common. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder if that makes sense that you can make a better attenuation. I mean, you know, there has been. Uh, it is possible to try to design viruses that are as good as possible. Uh, I mean, the the, the polio polio vaccine has been redesigned uh, recently to prevent. Uh, act reactivation uh, or re kind of vir- vir- virality or virulization of the of the uh, vaccine itself. I wonder if you can also do this for influenza, and then you can get this of uh, some of these benefits from the life. Yeah, um, I do wonder if an mRNA solution could help with some of this too. True. Yeah, it's interesting that they. Well, I guess it would be nice to see how mRNA. I mean, mRNA vaccine. Uh, compares right yeah, i mean nowadays paper, clearly mrna vaccine is is one of the standard vaccination pro- uh, platforms you know i think there is going to be more and more uh, adopted after the success well yeah we'll see so i have my second uh, paper for today also i thought it was very very cool story that actually i had heard about a couple of years ago i think already and i thought it was very interesting I think there's some people are a little bit skeptical about this uh, cell, uh, the, the one I want to talk about, but I want to believe. I, I you know I, I want to believe in this. 
So uh, the paper is called Targeting of Multiple Tumor-Associated Antigens by Individual T-Cell Receptors During Successful Cancer Immunotherapy. Uh, it was published in Cell. Uh, first authors, Gary Dalton, Christina Rius, and Aaron Wall from the lab of Andrew Sewell at Cardiff University uh, in Wales. And this story, you know, really kind of catches my attention because, of course, he's talking about T-cell specificity. And again, you know, this topic that I really like is how do T-cells see the world and know what they're supposed to do. The, 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 the work starts describing a, uh, a patient. So like discussing a, a patient that was treated with tumor infiltrating lymphocytes and was successful, re, re, went into remission and has been, you know, in remission for, for a decade or so. And they wanted to understand which are, what are the T cells recognizing? Oh, in this infusion, this patient got one times 10 to the 11th cells. So a thousand billion cells, uh, so a hundred billion cells, sorry. Um, and so that's a lot of cells, but that's not what you get. When you do these still therapies, these, uh, when you expand tills from tumors, you can get huge numbers of cells. And this, and so this, as I said, this, this patient responded very well. Also, they were looking into the cells, you know, the infusion product. And of course, you know, many of them recognized one particular antigen, which is uh, 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 I think it's ten, a ten uh, amino acid epitope from a um, protein called uh, either either Mart one or Melan A. So that's depending on if you want to use the European or the American name. Uh, so it was described as a cancer antigen by two different groups, one in Belgium and one in somewhere in the U.S. And they gave them different names. So we're going to say Milan A, just, you know, I usually say Mart 1, but for today I'm going to go for the European nomenclature. So um, they they see, of course, I mean, this is expected. We It's very common to find uh, Milan A specific TCRs uh, in, the, in the clonotypes uh, in, in melanoma patients uh, and also in, in T cell, in TIL products, very common. But what they saw, what they, they caught their attention is that they picked up a particular clone they called MEL8, could also recognize other tumors that did not express melan A. So what was this uh, T-cell res responding to? T-cells in principle have one TCR. What is it, what is it finding if, if, if these tumors don't express the melan A uh, target? And so this brought them kind of took them down a rabbit hole uh, into the description of what they call multi-pronged T cells that you know long story short I might, might be killing here my my um how you say the the, the final um the, the 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 end of my story but basically these T cells they show that clones like this can then respond not only to melan A, which is a, a known tumor-associated antigen, but then it also recognizes two, at least two other uh, epitopes, similar with similar uh, sequences, that are also uh, belonging to other uh, proteins that seem to also be, to some extent, tumor-associated, because they seem to be expressed much more in the tumors than in a healthy tissue. So they do this, they describe an interesting tool uh, um, that is uh, called Cantigen Platform, which basically finds, tries to predict uh, peptide specificity based on TCR sequence. And then they do some, so they, they did this for this clone, and then they did a bunch of, they tested uh, combinatorial peptide libraries to see, try to find which are the amino acids that are preferentially recognized by this T cell, by this T cell, uh, T cell receptor. And they find this and they, and they also find which are the other epitopes that the TCR is recognizing. And they show that indeed epitopes derived from other true proteins uh, are indeed being recognized in the context of the same HLA, a, a, HLA-A2, uh, which this patient has. Um, so they do a lot of like work around this. They do also some, um, um, 
uh, what's the word, some some structural analyses, and they show that indeed there's there's specific um, surface that they do they 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 look into the the the, the interaction between the TCR and these different pept and these different you know putative targets. So they don't know. I mean, where how this TCR if you got you know selected on one particular, but it just happens to be able to re recognize these three targets. And they show that there's specific hotspot areas, which are where the, the TCR is really interacting with the, with the peptide that seem to guide the recognition. Um, and that this is something that has not really been clearly described before. And, and they, they really seem to, they really suggest that this is a legitimate um, targeting strategy of certain T cells. Of course, not all T cells do. There's other, they show that other clones don't recognize more than one uh, target at the same time. But there are some TCRs that have particular, can uh, uh, recognize particular shared motifs, and that's enough for recognition. Uh, interestingly, so this, this patient also uh, still had this large amounts of, of uh, a considerable proportion of these T cells still uh, after many years after remission, uh, it's also suggesting so maybe you know these these TCR is being these T cells are being kept alive and this TCR is being stimulated by other than you know melan A, so and but it still is safe. This seems that the other targets don't have a um, negative uh, are not you know strongly targeted in healthy tissue, which is also pretty good. Of course, they seem to have patented this TCR in particular, but I think that's fair. Um, but the idea that you can find TCRs that are recognizing more than one tumor-associated antigens is, I think, is very attractive uh, for many reasons. Uh, and that is, if you look hard enough, you might find other combinations. Uh, but it was, this was a, quite a struck of luck, I guess, when they studied this patient uh, for the first time and they found this interesting thing. They also look into other tumors, uh, other tumor types, uh, and they also see some, some levels of cross-reactivity um, between you know the 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 expected target antigen and, and melan A or other other um, similar peptides that are also recognized by the same TCR. So um, I thought it was really cool. It's nice that they got it published. So as I say, I was I kind of I heard this story uh, some time ago, and I thought it was really cool. So congrats to the authors and to the corresponding author, and we'll see if we can find more of these cells. But it sounds like they, they're patenting it. I, I thought that there's new rules where you can't patent things that are discovered in biology. Like you can't patent BRCA1 gene anymore and stuff. I mean, yeah, you couldn't do that, I think, for, well, for, I think since Craig Venter wanted to patent the human genome or something. But uh, no, they, I don't know, they, they, they have patents granted and pending on TSA recognition of cancer via melan A, BST2, and IMP2, which are these other two targets of this particular TCR clone. So I don't know. Um, yeah, I guess if it's natural occurring, you cannot really, uh, you cannot, you cannot patent this, this gene itself, but you can patent the use of the G, the use of the TCR for the purpose of cancer therapy, I guess. That's true. All right. That, that, that's less bad than like, I patented human genome. Oh, I patented insulin. The human oh, insulin gene. Well, you know, I'm, this book that I'm reading, I'm listening to, Talks a lot about the whole how the, the the race to use the gene to make insulin, for example, is super interesting. Yep. Like the the origin of Genentech and um, and companies like that. So it was just like an office and shared like borrowed lab space in and and the university, and they were all in bro two people, and then they f they could get to be the first to uh, produce insulin, and that you know gave them the the what they needed to become this huge company that we know now. So, sorry, I, I digress, but it's all genes. Sure, it is, everything is a gene. All right, well, I'm going to talk, I have no segue here. It's, it's just immunology stuff, but it's gamma delta T cells. So, you know. Yay. Who doesn't love gamma delta T cells? So it's a nature cancer, gamma delta T cell dichotomy with opposing cytotoxic and wound healing functions in human solid tuners. First author is Kathal Harmon. Last author is Lydia Lynch. And it comes out also July 20th. So this was a really interesting paper and they had, I really liked their approach. 
So gamma delta T cells, as a reminder, are tissue resonant innate T cells. And important for homeostasis, they've been associated with a positive prognosis in most tumors, but there's little known about their heterogeneity in cancer. And they actually do a comparative study. They look at endometrial cancer and then in human colorectal cancer by phenotyping the innate and adaptive cells in them. And they found a very different set of functions, both between healthy and cancer and across the cancer types. So what's, what was powerful about this, they used some large existing data sets plus some extra data that they were able to gather. And they really were able to drive an understanding that actually in endometrial cancer, it's pretty homogeneous. And if you get into gamma details by cell biology, there's V delta one, V delta two, V delta three, there's subtypes. Because why not already subtype a T cell to gamma delta when you can subtype that further? It's immunology, we like subtypes. That being said, more is just generally better in endometrial cancer. The more you have, the better off you are. And that wasn't true in colorectal cancer. They saw a split. Now, colorectal cancer itself has a split between microstatolite instable cancer, which responds with well to immunotherapy and all the other stuff, which is most of it, which is microstatolite stable. And they saw that the pattern in instable cancer really matched endometrial. Hey, more gamma delta T cells generally great, dies better. Thank you. But in the stable type, they saw that this V1 subtype was dominant and produced a lot of amphiregulin or AREG. Um, whereas in the gamma delta compartment endometrial cells, they were mostly cytotoxic. Um, if you do a humanized colorectal model, CRC model, in mice, they found that tumors induce this AREG in the gamma delta 1 cells. And so you see a shift in how the gamma delta V1 population, this V1 population, or V delta 1, but that, that's even harder to say, but this V delta 1 population shifted its function to amphiregulin high, which was then this wound healing phenotype that supported cancer and was bad for it away from the cytotoxic process. But then what they were able to do, because like there's a desire to use these gamma delta T cells as a immunotherapy, but they're finding if they shove them in into colon cancer, they just get switched this alpha regulant thing at baseline. But here's where they got really clever is that then after figuring this out, they're like, well, how can we make this work? And by the way, it's alpha regulant cells induce proliferation. So they're bad actors, right? So they wondered... Um, they had found, they found here in looking literature that IL-15 reduced alpha regulin production, increased interferon production. And so this kind of, and they kind of knew this from the earlier data set that uh, they would see this population shift where the bad acting cells, IL-15 was down, interferon, you know. So, and interferon was down, right? So they're trying to shift it and they could see that the patterns ahead of time. So what they did is they took the cells out and did an expansion process where they introduced, inter, introduced IL-15 and they were able to ex vivo expand the cells from generation to generation two. These generation two V1 gamma delta T cells looked more cytotoxic, like your, your endometrial gamma delta V1 T cells. And when they put them in their mirroring models, they did not flip and induce AREG and lead to more cancer, but behaved exactly like you wanted them to and killed the cancer in the way that it was being done. So that's what I really liked is that they, they took this split, noticed that where colon cancer went sideways and started shifting the function of these cells in a negative way as opposed to endometrial cancer, they then understood the signaling of that in this paper and then figured out how to cull culture ex vivo to stop that from happening. And when they introduce it back, these cells persist and don't get flipped by the cancer anymore. So they're preconditioned in the ex vivo culture and expansion and then do what you want them to do, which then makes them a potent cell, a potent cell for immunotherapy. They do scratch assays and other things to show that, yeah, they don't do the wound healing phenotype, so on and so forth. But fundamentally, they, they, they map this out. They look at some immunometabolism as well afterwards. But that's what I really liked is they, they use this differential process 
to understand where something was going screwy and something from, from a good actor to a bad. And then they took the bad actor and made it a good actor again. Take those gamma delta cells under control, make them do your bidding. Is yeah, that it? Exactly. I mean, that's that cell therapy, right? Yeah. She, she I, should I love guess, this as a as a T yeah. cell cell therapy person. Well, you know, the gamma deltas are the weird cousins of the alpha betas, but that's okay, you know. Um, I do think they have a lot of a lot of promise. Um, but we I think we still don't understand them completely. But I would like to. I would like to see if, what if I put an alpha beta TCR into a gamma delta cell, mm, and I use good that. Question. I would also say just because you have a weird cousin doesn't mean you can't love them. <laughs> no, you just you have what you have, and you have to love it all. So we had to find a way. I mean, I, I respect them. I don't work with them because they're famously difficult to work with. So I'll not a postdoc project when you want to want to. Keep moving. Yeah, when you want to get something done, right? Uh, but you know, maybe a collaboration. I know some people that are working in gamma delta. I know uh, one of our, our close friends who's been on the pod, Karen Edelblum, is a gamma delta. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so yeah, but I guess yeah, and so, but it wasn't clear. So it was just the alpha of of amphiregulin is a marker. There's a whole program associated with it, but these amphiregulin V delta one are bad actors and alpha regulin is, you know, binds to epidermal growth factor receptor and all this badness. So mm. it's like the main driver, but there's all this whole, you know, single cell RNA seq map profile with genetic markers and metabolic metabolomic markers and so on and so forth. But I yeah. deep dive into, you know, figures one through extended 25. <laughs> everything they did but yes read all it right. if you want to see all of that but they did map it out all um, right thank you for sharing it was very interesting speaking of mapping things out and viruses transmitting and stuff we're going to be speaking with dr daniel Stryker at the university of glasgow in just a moment but before we get to that we'd like to remind our listeners about immunology of infectious disease news a free weekly newsletter brought to you by stem cell science news summarizing the latest research news jobs and events in infectious diseases Immunology of Infectious Disease News help you stay current with the latest COVID-19, HIV, hepatitis, tuberculosis, influenza, and malaria research. God, it's a dangerous world out there. Subscribe at www.immunologyofinfectiousdiseasenews.com to figure out what may come after you next. Well, hi, everyone. Uh, we are joined today for a conversation by uh, Dr. Daniel Stryker. He is professor of viral ecology and Infectious Disease Ecology at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. And his work specializes in understanding spatial epidemiology, ecology, and the control of vampire rat bats and, and diseases that they carry, such as rabies. So I hope we're going to talk a little bit about those, those little uh, disease vectors and how uh, they affect their, how they, their movements and their biology affects human uh, health. So thank you, Dr. Stryker, so much for joining us. Welcome to the Immunology Podcast. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. All right, Brendan, do you want to go first this time? Or do you want me to jump in on bat questions? I mean, aren't all questions today going to be about bats? Do you have a very pressing question you want to start with? I will give you the, the floor. I mean, my mind one is how often are you called Batman? Great question. Um, for a while, that was actually on my door. I think it was a joke by the people that like kind of put the, the the label on my office door. But yeah, for a while, it did say Daniel Batman Striker. So yeah, you're you're not the first to come up with <laughs> with, with that little joke. I had to get it out of my system. No, but <laughs> oh my this is fascinating. So we've heard a lot of bat about bats with with SARS CoV two lately, and we all became you know little mini bat biologists in our you know free time reading the newspapers or what have you. But you have a whole other bent on rabies in particular and, and vampire bats, which is both interesting because it's rabies and interesting because the word vampire is there and then bat. So you just have three words that makes people's ears all perk. So I don't know if you could kind of start with rabies are, or if vampire bats are a reservoir for rabies, apparently. And what does that mean? Yeah, so um, in most Latin American countries, vampire bats are the most important source of human and animal rabies. Uh, they're such a good reservoir for rabies uh, because 
they maintain the virus within their uh, within their own populations, but they are, as their name implies, purely blood feeding bats. And so virus rabies being a virus that transmits through the saliva, vampire bats being uh, a species that has to bite humans and livestock to survive, uh, just creates this really natural transmission cycle for for rabies to jump from bats uh, into humans and livestock. Uh, and so uh, that causes real problems uh, because rabies is a lethal disease. So um, people do die of rabies after getting bitten and, and kind of having their blood fed upon uh, by vampire bats. Uh, but then the livestock problem is also quite severe. So really, probably tens of thousands of, of animals are dying across Latin America every year because of rabies. Uh, it's vaccine preventable uh, in the livestock, but people tend not to want to invest in livestock vaccination. Uh, so sadly, um, these deaths really do affect some of the poorest people in some of the poorest countries in Latin America. So uh, this, these are cases where like the death of an animal implies that somebody's kid can't go to school because they have to work. So it's these sorts of really human impacts that you see with this disease, even if there's not sort of a huge macro macroeconomic impact of, of rabies losses. But the numbers are quite high, right? Of, of people of like, I hear maybe we don't see that in more developed countries. You, you never heard of anybody getting rabies, but yeah, the burden can be crippling. Yeah, it, it can be kind of terrifying because there's... Well, one is that we really don't understand how often it's happening, particularly in human communities, uh, because the places that tend to be most vulnerable to getting bitten by bats and therefore for having rabies outbreaks tend to be isolated communities often uh, in, in the Amazon. So these are often places that are only accessible by boat. And so we can hear about it sometimes when there is a big outbreak that's close enough to health centers that it gets reported. Uh, and there are instances where 10, 20, 30 people within a village will, will die of rabies within the span of a couple of months. So it's tragic because those are preventable deaths. There are good vaccines, um, but it's really a question of those people not having either the, the knowledge that getting bitten by a bat is a risk for rabies or not having the resources to be able to go to a health center and get the post-exposure prophylaxis. That's heartbreaking. So now what are the options when it comes to vaccination? And so both we have the prophylactic vaccination that you get after you get bitten, and that's usually here. You no, know, it's something you can access. You can um, access quite uh, when the uh, the resources are there. Is there are there vaccines that you can also you also get? Can you get vaccinated before uh, as a part of a regular uh, vaccination scheme? Yeah, absolutely. Those pre-exposure vaccines do exist. Uh, they're typically reserved for people who are like kind of in high risk occupations. Uh, so like veterinarians or, or or people like myself that are, are regularly catching and interacting with bats. Even after those vaccines, though, like if you're exposed to an animal that may have rabies, it's still recommended to get booster vaccines. So the pre-exposure vaccination is a completely uh, foolproof as a way of preventing rabies. What would be potentially useful is large-scale vaccination of high-risk populations, uh, so people that are likely to get bitten by bats. And so there have been some pilot studies in the north of Peru that have investigated doing that. Um, it's hard to know how effective they are because rabies isn't a constant threat. It's not that there's people dying so much that you can quantify um, the benefits of those campaigns, but still, um, even if it saved one or two children from dying, that's a real win. So I wanna take a step back with the vampire bats biting and all this stuff. And obviously they can transmit it to your dog and your dog can bite you, or I guess with a rabid cow will bite you too pick something right but but my understanding a couple of things one is that you don't feel it when vampire bats bite sometimes is is that a correct part because the people don't know yeah that's uh that's surprisingly correct yeah so the the people very often don't feel bat bites uh that's because the people are, are sleeping the bats are pretty good at identifying people that are in a very deep sleep and the way they actually bite is a very quick process in terms of their actual contact with a person so the bat doesn't like kind of bite, hold on and suck the blood through its teeth. Uh, instead, it makes a really tiny incision, uh, sort of like a little bit bigger than the size of a, a pinhead, uh, and then licks as the blood comes out. Uh, the bat's tongue is very specialized to like help the flow of blood. And the saliva also contains an anticoagulant. So the blood keeps flowing. And so for that reason, there's not that much contact between the bat and the thing that the bat is biting. Um, and so I think 
because of that, people tend not to wake up. They do know that they've been bitten by something when they wake up in the morning because there's a pool of blood. Uh, and that's, again, because of the anticoagulants in the bat saliva. That sounds terrifying. So this, let's talk more about the bats. So the bats, they don't they don't get sick of the virus. Or what is how does the virus affect the bat biology itself? So in the case of rabies, uh, the bats do die, um, just like any other mammal infected with rabies. Uh, there's a slight nuance there where some bats that get exposed to rabies seem to mount uh, enough of an immune response to clear the virus before it's ever capable of transmitting. So that's something that in the rabies world we call an abortive infection. So that's basically like a, a failed exposure that maybe there wasn't enough virus there. Maybe it was something to do with the bat's immune system. We're not quite sure why it happens. Uh, but those bats that do go on to transmit will inevitably die. All right. Okay, so they're not just harmless vectors. Uh, like they're not just a uh, bystander vectors. They are also also affected by the by the virus. Yeah, exactly. They're also affected, and, and that creates a really tricky problem uh, because all bats are fairly slowly reproducing species. Um, each female produces one offspring per year. So you've got the slow reproducing, long-lived species that can live uh, in the wild like 17, 18 years, um, yet they're maintaining a lethal virus. <laughs> so you would think that one of the that there wouldn't be that equilibrium where like either the virus would wipe out the bats or the virus would go would go extinct. Uh, but in this case, um, the kind of adaptation of the virus is so perfect that it manages to find uh, a way to maintain itself within the bats despite killing them. Yeah, and do bites do bats get infected by each other, or do they get infected if they then bite a person that was previously infected? Like when it comes to rabies in particular, how do they get infected? That's a great point. Uh, the bats bite each other, and that's how they transmit the uh, rabies between them. They feed on each other. They don't feed on each other. No, so there's like I guess there's transmission to people and livestock happens during feeding. The transmission among bats probably occurs more through aggressive interactions. Um, and that's kind of compatible with rabies as a virus, which alters behavior. So that might be that they're kind of hyper defensive and bite their neighbor, or it might be that they're actually quite aggressive and going after their neighbors and kind of actively trying to bite them. So, so I have one more question, which is about vampires themselves, the bat type. So, so not the Transylvania type, the, the not the, the not not the, the not the Nosferatu who need blood from humans to maintain their powers of darkness. But what is it about blood that vampire bats require that they can't like, like, like what the what? Like this seems like a very <laughs> interesting evolutionary niche to have your sole food source. And maybe it's not their soul food, or maybe they eat other stuff too. I don't know that they just need blood as well as a side meal. But to have like your nutrients have to be mm -hmm. something that's inside another thing that you have to get out while they're still alive by like biting them in their sleep and then licking them. Why can't they eat fruit like the rest of the bats? <laughs> or even small mice or something, right? Like it seems to be kind of a weird dietary choice. It, it does seem like a strange diet. Uh, it's only evolved once. Uh, this this habit of feeding exclusively on blood, uh, but it's since diversified somewhat. There's there's three living species of bats that feed on blood, and they're all kind of related to each other. Um, the thought is that this behavior might have evolved in a time where there were lots of large-bodied mammals uh, around, and may, no one's really sure how it happened. Uh, one idea is that they could have been uh, bats that specialized on feeding on the ectoparasites, so like the the ticks. Uh, of large body mammals and then just realize actually the blood's pretty tasty as well. Uh, and then over time, things like their their microbiome, their digestive system has all adapted to be able to make them able to, to live on, on such a strange resource as blood. Um, but for whatever reason, this is how evolution played out. Uh, and now we have these really curious and fascinating creatures that are just supremely well adapted for their lifestyle. But But along that, is there something about them that requires them to only have blood as a source now there is yeah uh, so now like the their whole digestive system is, is bizarre and it's set up for liquid diet only so they don't really have like a big stomach the way most animals do it's sort of like an extended um uh, small intestine um so yeah i i think they they could not feed on anything other than blood at this point 
or, or maybe some sort of liquid diet with nutrients, but you know, and, and nature, they're going to feed on blood and, and nothing else. Those synthetic blood for the, for the vampires. Um, so because you know, the, these bats are problematic. Oh, they, I'm surprised there are only three. I thought there would be more. So if they are such large vectors for such a devastating disease, um, what do we know about trying to stop the infection at the source? Can we prevent bats from being infected with rabies? That's been kind of the, the holy grail of, of vampire bat rabies control since probably uh, the 1970s. Um, efforts have mainly concentrated on killing the bats. Uh, the idea being that fewer bats would mean less rabies in the bats, which would mean less rabies in, in the cattle and the people. Um, it's a bit debatable how effective that is as a strategy. Um, kind of intuitively, you would think that there is that really clear relationship between this, the size of a bat population and the amount of rabies. But in practice, that turns out not to be the case. Um, happy to go into the reasons why that's not the case. But I, I'll, I'll, for now, I'll just move on and hope that you'll believe me that uh, that there's not really a strong relationship there. Um, so because there's not that relationship, uh, by reducing the size of the bat population, you don't necessarily reduce the burden of rabies and, and other species. Um, and so that's, that's unfortunate because this is a, a policy that's currently done by, by most countries in Latin America. Uh, the strategies currently are focused around using anticoagulant poisons. Uh, so these are kind of cleverly named vampiricides. And the way these vampiricides work is by putting this anticoagulant into a gel or a paste, which is then spread into the fur of one or a few bats that are captured like while they're out foraging. Those bats then return to the roost that they came from. Uh, and these are a very highly social species. And one of the behaviors that they have is to lick each other. So they kind of they groom each other. So when one comes back full of this gunk, uh, the others will lick it off of the first bat, thereby ingesting the poison and dying. So that's what's currently done. And um, its value for rabies control is, is, I think, quite debatable. Its value for reducing bites on livestock or people is, I think, a bit better established. Uh, and so that's a positive thing. Um, it also has value that I think people don't often think about, which is that if we if governments don't control vampire bat populations, then people will. Uh, and by people, I mean like the local communities that are affected by by bats and rabies. And so uh, the way that happens is not as good as the poison. So that can be uh, by using explosives or uh, lighting caves on fire or using things like cyanide gas uh, or just any sort of kind of cruel contraption you can imagine to, to kill bats as they're flying out of a roost. Um, so I think ultimately the field will need some form of vampire bat population control, but I think there are reservations over whether that should be culling and whether the culling, that's the population control, uh, will actually reduce rabies. And so we, we kind of touched upon that, you know, we are an immunology podcast after all. You seem a little bit uh, un unsure about vaccinating the bats, like preventing the bats from being infected, or not. Um, well, what, where, I, I wouldn't where say we... unsure. I, I, well, I guess I would say curious about the possibility. Um, so classically, bats have really not been on anybody's radar as a species that could be vaccinated at a sufficient scale that you would interrupt transmission in the bats and therefore reduce transmission to the other species. Um, that's not because of some funky aspect to the immune system of bats. We can vaccinate them on an individual scale. Uh, it's really just that bats tend to be living in large populations and in isolated areas. They're, they're reclusive mm -hmm. animals. So it's really an issue of scalability. Um, yeah. You can't go out and vaccinate bats one by one. And so one of the, I think, exciting new possibilities is to create vaccines that have some capacity for spreading themselves from bat to bat. Um, there's two possibilities for how those vaccines could work. Uh, one is what we would call a transferable vaccine, 
Uh, and so that would basically be an oral vaccine similar to what is already used for rabies, uh, but put into a gel that is applied to the bat and then spreads among bats as they groom each other. Um, the second form of vaccines that could be developed uh, are something called a transmissible vaccine. And so here we're talking about taking a naturally occurring virus, something that's already there in the bat population, taking it into the laboratory, engineering it to express a uh, antigen or a protein of a target virus like rabies, and then re-releasing it into the wild. And so the key thing with that sort of vaccine is that it spreads over multiple generations. So it's not just from the bat that you initially vaccinated, but also from the bat that that bat vaccinated. So you have multiple generations of spread. And the way that that could be done safely, we hope, uh, is by using viruses that are naturally already in the bats and naturally don't have any uh, harmful effects on the bats. So one of the main concerns with this sort of approach is that um, you could have a virus that evolves to become more dangerous over time. Um, but if you're starting from a baseline virus, which isn't dangerous, then the most likely evolutionary scenario is just that that vaccine kicks out the protein that you put into it and it returns to the same virus that's already there. Yeah. Where we are now is exploring how those sorts of vaccines might work. So we're thinking about studying the, the biology, the ecology, the epidemiology of a candidate virus that could be used as a vector for that sort of vaccine. And right now it looks quite promising. We think we've got a vector which meets all the criteria that we would like in this sort of transmissible vaccine. And at least according to some mathematical modeling, seems like it could do quite a lot in terms of reducing the incidence of rabies within bats and therefore transmission to other species like people and, and livestock. So you guys close to trying it out? We're a little ways off. Um, as I said, at the moment, it's really just understanding the ecology and epidemiology and evolution of this virus. Uh, the next steps are to actually isolate that virus and turn it into a vaccine uh, and then go into like cell culture studies and animal infection studies. So I think we're, we're trying to make progress on all those fronts, but you know, it's a, uh, it's slow going. If it were easy, it had already been done. So yes, good luck. <laughs> good luck with that. All right. Well, before the end of the interview, we always like to ask some questions. Really get you know what the person behind the mask and the cape and the cowl and all of that. Um, <laughs> so, so for you, we have some fill in the blank questions that we're going to do here. Okay. All right. So, when I am not conducting research, I am fill in the blank. Um. Well, I, I live here in Scotland. There's a lot of beautiful outdoor things. So um, I am uh, hiking, going on bike rides, uh, swimming in locks. Um, I'm a relatively new parent of an almost two-year-old. So I'm kind of relearning how to do all those things uh, with a toddler in tow, uh, which has been just an absolute blast, um, temper tantrums aside. Going on a walk with a toddler is a very unique thing. To I do. have a backpack for that. <laughs> oh, nice. Uh, skateboarding is next. I'm <laughs> still go. a little bit young for that. There you go. But that's that's on that's the next one on the, on the game plan. All right. The next part. If I could have one superpower, it would be superpower. I would say teleportation. Nice. Um, Fishing. I think. Yeah. Exactly. Like I, I do a lot of field work in in South America, but I also like miss my family and friends all around the world. Um, so the the thought of that I could like be there catching bats, doing whatever I need to do, and then kind of instantly be home for dinner. That that sounds great. All right. And last one. I can't start my day without. This is a boring answer, but uh, I'll have to be honest. It's it's coffee. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Probably every academic says that. <laughs> Some Definitely say Jason. Same yeah, yeah. tea. I say coffee. I mean, you yeah. are in the you know, British Isles after all. I'm surprised you don't say tea. Uh, I thought by now they would have got you. No, I, I've been here 10 years, but I uh, haven't picked up the tea habit. I don't mind tea, but, you know, at the start of the day, it's coffee. Fair enough. I mean, it could also be in Scotland, it could also be whiskey. So I guess coffee is probably the, the, the most uh, healthier version. <laughs> Had you asked, how do you end the day? <laughs> <laughs> Coffee. Whiskey might have been on the menu. 
whiskey, coffee with whiskey. That's, that's also great. a thing. Yeah. That's a thing. It is a good thing. Um, <laughs> I'm going to keep those separate in the morning. <laughs> Probably better. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Thank you again for joining us. This has been a very interesting conversation, uh, an eye-opening, and I hope that you guys uh, advance and, you know, can get all those bats immunized and get rid of rabies in Peru. Uh, it would be an amazing result. And if not... Yeah, thank you. That's why we, stri we strive for the best. Yeah. Pleasure. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com where you can get show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com if you have any feedback or you would like to suggest a guest. I'll see you next time.